Amen. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we come to you today confessing uh, our need for your grace, our need for your help. We pray that today you would grow our faith, that you would deepen our, our appreciation for your word, for your gospel. We confess that we are unable to grow, we're unable to change, we're unable to somehow achieve uh, sanctification or salvation on our own. We need you. And we're thankful that you've proven yourself over and over and over again. You rose from the dead. You have built your church. You are the one who saves your people. And you are the one who will take us all the way home in the end. So we come to you with expectancy and faith, and we ask for your help now. Amen. Please open to Exodus chapter 32 this morning. Uh, We've spent the last four weeks um, in our study of Exodus going through the instructions about the tabernacle. Moses is on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights, and what he's given is a worship manual for the people of God, this covenant community that God has brought together. And you start to wonder, okay, this is great wonderful plans for worship, these amazing truths that are displayed so beautifully and gloriously in the tabernacle, its furnishings, the priests, and the rituals that will take place there. I wonder what's going on back at the ranch. Well, Exodus 32 is one of the most famous passages in the book. And if you know this story, if you're familiar with Exodus, then you know where we're going this morning. It's not only one of the most famous, but Exodus chapter 32 is also one of the most tragic. It really is a heartbreaking example of the human tendency, in spite of God's goodness, in spite of all that he's done for us, in spite of everything that he's revealed about himself, our tendency to turn away. This is really not a new turn of events. If you've read through scripture, you'll know that that this is actually somewhat of a theme If we go back to the beginning in Genesis, which is the prequel to this book, we know that God created this amazing place where his people could enjoy fellowship with him and and fulfill his purposes for them. And everything is very good. But it doesn't take long until Adam sins. He disobeys. There is this fall from grace, and it results in a curse that spreads to all creation. It brings death. And eventually things get so bad that God sends a great flood to judge mankind and to cleanse the earth. He has to start over. He starts over with Noah. With Noah, we have a new opportunity for the human race. We have fresh promises given, signified by the rainbow, and a fresh set of instructions to fill the earth. But once again, there's almost an immediate tragic sin that results again in cursing. And we see the corruption actually survived the flood. It was incubated in the heart of man. And eventually, by the time we get to Genesis 11, we have this whole Tower of Babel situation where the entire human race, once again, is united in their rebellion against God. This time, they're not destroyed, but they are scattered in judgment. And so once again, God has to start something new. God has to do something fresh. He calls a man named Abraham and does a new thing. And we see that God has in his mind, in his purposes, a restoration of sorts. Big plans to bring blessing to the world. 
Abraham's descendants become a great nation down in Egypt. And in the Exodus, God brings them out with great power. And then at Sinai, he enters into this covenant relationship with them so that he can dwell among them. He can be their God. They can be his people. And they can be this holy nation that will fulfill his purposes for them in the world. But once again, just like in the garden, just like at Babel, there's a fall. The people disobey, and they rebel against God. You see, in every age, the danger of sin is real. It's present. As one pastor wisely pointed out, commenting on this text, Exodus 32 doesn't just tell us what happened. It tells us what happens. It tells us something about ourselves, about our propensity to turn from God and to revert to our sinful ways, to abandon his law, and to embrace idolatry. This leaves us in a desperate place. When we realize this about ourselves, when we realize this about the human condition, we find ourselves looking to God, utterly dependent on his mercy, in need of his his faithful and sovereign action in order to rescue and redeem and restore Sinful failures like us. This story really is a study in contrasts, as we'll see. We'll take actually a few weeks to go through Exodus 32. It's a contrast between the instructions for true worship in the tabernacle that we've seen and this this true worship that was designed by God. It's a contrast between that and this corrupted, unholy worship in the desert that was designed by man. It's a contrast between the failed leadership of Aaron and the faithful leadership of Moses. It's a contrast, ultimately, between an unfaithful people and their faithful God. So I'd like to work our way through the first two scenes of this story, and I'd like to, in the end, draw out three eternal principles that I think are truths that we need to take with us as we go from here today. The first scene is in verses 1 through 6, and in this first scene, we find this tragedy, critical failure of a faithless people. It says, when the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. If you remember back in chapter 24, the covenant that Israel had with God had been sort of confirmed. It had been inaugurated, as you will. There were sacrifices made and blood that was placed on the altar and on the people. And there had been this special fellowship meal that took place there. And there had been this promise where the people said, everything that the Lord has spoken, we will do. 
And then at the end of that, God had called Moses to come up to the mountain, and Moses had told them that it was going to take a minute. He said to the elders in verse 14 of 24, Wait here for us until we return to you. Behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. Moses had said, wait for my return. But 40 days proved to be too much for the people. It's ironic. They were the ones who'd actually asked Moses to to be their mediator when, when God had revealed the Ten Commandments. He spoke from the mountain to the people. They heard his voice directly, and they had begged that no further, no further word be spoken from God. They said, this is too much for, for us to handle, but Moses, you go speak to God for us. So they had actually requested that Moses be their intermediary, but they grow tired of waiting, and we see this failure unfold. We see corrupt desires in the people. We see it in their impatience. They're not okay with waiting any longer. They're getting tired of sitting at the bottom of the mountain. They want to start making tracks for Canaan, the promised land. They don't want to live out here in the desert forever. We see attitudes of unbelief. They don't think that Moses is coming back. They said, we don't know what's become of him. And their unbelief in Moses really reflects an unbelief in God. We don't think God's going to come back. We don't think we're going to hear anything more from him. I guess we better take things into our own hands. And and even the way it's described here indicates a kind of hostility. In chapter 32, where it says the people, that they gathered themselves together to Aaron. In the Hebrew text, there's there's a sense of even gathering against Aaron. There's a sense of hostility. They're making demands. This is a coup. Moses is out. He's fired. You better do for us what we say. The implication is almost that otherwise we'll fire you too and we'll get somebody else to do what we want them to do. Ultimately, what's happening here is they're giving up on their covenant with God. They say, make us gods who will go before us. Remember, they had pledged to worship this God and him alone. They had pledged to be his people. They had pledged to obey his word. The first commandment is you shall have no other gods before me. The second is don't make any graven images and bow down and worship them. But they say, we're done with that God, make us new ones, and we're absolutely going to worship an idol. They're abandoning their covenant with God. Really, before the golden calf is ever formed, before any sacrifices are made, before any actions take place, the crucial sin is the one that takes place in the heart. A.W. Pink commented years ago, man must have an object, referring to an object of worship. And when he turns from God, he at once craves a false one. Man must have an object, and when he turns from God, he at once craves a false one. Over the course of 40 days, their pledge of loyalty to God, their remembrance of all that God had done for them, their understanding of the covenant, it was gone. They turned from it, and immediately they crave a false god. These corrupt desires lead to creating gods for themselves. Aaron tells them to to take off the earrings that were in their ears. We talked a while back about how when the children of Israel departed from, from Egypt, that their neighbors showered blessings on them, gave them gold, gave them ornaments, gave them resources. And we know that from the instructions of the tabernacle that this was God's provision for them to have the precious metals and materials to build a place, a holy place of worship to the one true God. 
and what God had provided for these people to use in the worship of him, they take it off and they use it for false worship. They use it wrongly. And as we'll see, it's eventually lost. Moses is going to come down, grind this thing into powder, throw it on the water, and make him drink it. It's going to go to waste. They ask Aaron to make them a god, and Aaron fashions it into a golden calf. You say, why a golden calf? You have to understand that these people might have been taken out of Egypt, but there is still a lot of Egypt in them. There were many false gods in Egypt that took the form of a bull or a calf. It was a symbol of strength, a symbol of power, and it was seen to be sacred. And so the people are really doing what they know to do. Old habits die hard. They're reverting to what they know. And instead of being a holy nation that is unique and distinct, they're starting to act like, worship like, become exactly like the pagan nations around them. So Aaron makes this golden calf. And in doing so, you kind of see this tension that Aaron is experiencing. The people say, make us gods, plural, but he makes them one idol, this golden calf. The people say, these are your gods, plural, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And you see Aaron sort of trying to do some damage control in verse 5. He says, well, tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. Aaron is trying to rein this thing in. He's trying to connect this golden calf to to Yahweh and say, well, okay, I I know they need something they can see, something they can touch. They need something now, and and Moses is gone. Maybe I can sort of connect the dots, and you see his guilty conscience at work. But that actually means it's worse, not better. It means that Aaron knows better. He knows they should be worshiping the Lord. And so even in trying to fix it, Aaron is violating not the first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. He's violating the second commandment, saying not to make a graven image. God doesn't want to be represented by something made with human hands. So we see really the first and the second commandment are both being violated. As as Aaron tries to attach this pagan practice to the true worship of Yahweh. And I think we're familiar with these aspects of it, but notice what happens next. There's supposed to be this feast, and in verse 6, they rise up and offer burnt offerings and peace offerings. There's a meal, and then it says they rise up to play. What's going on here? This is really the beginning of a counterfeit covenant. Again, you can, you can read this little passage as a parallel to chapter 24, where the people worshiped the true God, where they made sacrifices to Yahweh, where the elders went up on the mountain and they ate and they drank and they beheld God. There was a covenantal meal where Moses and Aaron and those elders celebrated the fact that Israel was now joined with God in this covenant. And this reads like a sad imitation, a corrupted one. As they abandon their covenant with God and and have this this man-made, pagan, corrupted, unholy covenantal celebration. It's interesting, they make these offerings. The burnt offering symbolizes, as we've talked about, dedication. They're dedicating themselves to this golden calf. The peace offering demonstrates fellowship, that they are now joined to and in, in, in relationship with this golden calf. It's ironic, what's missing is the sin offering. They don't seem to be too sensitive to that at the moment. Then they sat down to eat and to drink. They celebrate this. And what's horrible is they actually credit this cow with the miraculous redemption of the Exodus. 
They say, these are your gods, verse four. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. That's what kicks off this whole party. That's what kicks off these sacrifices. That's what kicks off this meal and this celebration is that they attribute their rescue from slavery to a false god. Back in Exodus chapter 20, God spoke these words from the mountain to Israel. They heard him say it with his own voice, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And the very next words out of his mouth were, you shall have no other gods before me. Don't make any graven images. And now they take those same words that they once heard from the mouth of God himself. And they say, these are your gods who brought you up out of the house of Egypt, the land of slavery. This is covenantal language. Covenantal counterfeit. And then it says they rose up to play. This is kind of an obscure phrase. Some people will go to pretty far reaches to describe what was happening here. But basically, this is pagan worship. It's a worldly celebration of sin. They feel great about their actions. There's no shame here. They're openly flaunting the fact that they now have this God that they can see, that they can touch. There's, there's no separation. There's no holy tabernacle. There's no warnings of judgment They've created a God for themselves, and they're celebrating it openly. And this is ultimately an abandonment of their covenant with God. Again, in chapter 24, in two different times, these people had said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. They had promised to obey the Ten Commandments. They had promised to take this God, Yahweh, as their God and to be his people and to devote themselves to be this holy nation. But now they've fired Moses, they've hired Aaron, they're worshiping false gods, and instead of being a holy nation, they've become exactly like the pagan nations around them. What happened? What, what, what happened here? If you're a coroner coming up on the scene, what's the autopsy, as you were, if you could say it that way, what's the autopsy of their apostasy, their rejection of God? Well, in a word, this is sin. It's sin. We can sort of unpack this sin. We see the sin of distrust. They distrust God's timing. 40 days is too long. We're done. We're out. Plan B. God had given them every reason to trust him. He brought them out of Egypt with signs and wonders, amazing plagues, parted the Red Sea, fed them with manna from heaven and water from the rock. He had met their every need, protected them in every circumstance. And he had appointed Moses as their mediator and was revealing this covenant, this law through Moses. What more could they ask for? But they don't trust God. They gave up on him. They forgot him. In Psalm 106, the psalmist recaps what happened. They made a calf in Horeb and worshiped a metal image. They exchanged the glory of God for the image of an ox that eats grass. They forgot God, their Savior. They forgot him. And not in the sense that literally the, the facts of what had happened somehow slipped out of their mind, but they forgot him in the sense that they no longer trusted him. They're moving on. They're moving on from this God, forgetting him in a relational, covenantal sense. It's the sin of distrust. Secondly, it's the sin of discontentment. They're not okay with God's plan. God says don't make idols, but they think they have a better way. 
This is a rejection of God's will. It's a statement that they don't think God knows what he's doing. They don't think that God knows what is best. They are discontent with God's will for them. They need, in their own mind, something different. It's the sin of distrust, the sin of discontentment, and it's the sin of self-determination. God says to do it this way, but we have a better idea. They decide to worship according to their design, to worship according to their idea of, of what would be best, rather than submitting to God's design. They insist on what is acceptable to them and their terms, their expectations, rather than submitting to what is acceptable to God, following his terms and his expectations. This is, at the end of the day, the sin of disobedience. It's just flat-out breaking God's law. They violate the first commandment, no other gods before him. They violate the second commandment, or at least Aaron does, making an image and attributing this image to God as if it could somehow reflect his glory. And you could even say they're violating the third commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain. They'd pledged themselves to him, said, we will be your people, and then they backed out. At every step, they're walking in complete disobedience to God. You know, it's easy for us to condemn Israel, isn't it? And this story seems on the surface to be completely foreign to our experience. You're like, yeah, come to my house, JD. You won't find any uh, golden calves out back. This isn't a problem for me. But really, as we said at the beginning, this is us. Do you ever distrust God? Is his timing ever not acceptable to you? Are you ever discontent with God's ways? I know that this is the right thing to do and what God calls me to, but this is what I really would prefer to do over here, and I think it would actually work better. Do you ever insist on determining your own path? Do you ever disobey his law? Do you ever fail to keep your vows to obey Christ and follow him? I do, and so do you, every single one of us. We are just like them. At the base of Mount Sinai, we see this critical failure by a faithless people. And if you can't see your reflection here, you need to look again. Look again. Because this tells us something about the human condition. It tells us something about the nature of all sin, which means it tells us something about our sin. So at the base of the mountain, there's this critical failure by faithless people. But then the scene shifts to the top of the mountain where Moses is meeting with the Lord. And there we find this stark contrast. There's this critical failure at the bottom. But at the top of the mountain, what we find is crucial faith in a faithful God. Something totally different. Something that totally contrasts what we've just witnessed in sinful man. Scene two is verses seven through 14. And this scene is really made up of two speeches. First, there's a statement by God. God sort of outlines for Moses what is going on. And then we find a response by Moses. Look at what the Lord says in verse seven. The Lord said to Moses, go down for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf 
and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. Remember back in chapter 19, what is God's purpose for this people? Why did he save them? Why did he bring them out of slavery? He brought them out so that they would serve him on this mountain, so that they would worship him on this mountain. He brought them out so that they would be a holy nation. And while the people had pledged themselves to do this, they have willfully rebelled, and God says that they have, according to verse 7, corrupted themselves. That's important. They have corrupted themselves. You see, this is more than just a violation of the law. This is more than just they made a mistake or they broke one of my rules. They have corrupted themselves. And God says that because what they have done amounts to nothing less than a repudiation of the covenant. Look at how God describes it to Moses. It's interesting here, the language. He says, go down for, notice this, your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. Say, wait a second, I I thought that these were God's people. I mean, he had told Pharaoh, let my people go. He didn't say, let Moses' people go. God had claimed them as his own. He loved them. He had chosen them by his grace to raise them up and make them a great nation. And then he had brought them to himself at the mountain. Why does he say, your people whom you brought out? What God is pointing out is that these people have abandoned the covenant. They've divorced God. They have abandoned him, repudiated their vows. And so if they're going to treat God as an ex-God, then he has to treat them as his ex-people. Not only does he say your people whom you have brought out, but he outlines for Moses what has happened, that they made an image They violated the second commandment. They have worshipped it and sacrificed to it. And because it can't represent God, this represents bowing down to another God altogether. They've broken the first commandment. And then even worse, they've ascribed their deliverance and their redemption from slavery to this idol. I mean, God is pointing out. He's heard these words. These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the conclusion of all of this is, again, not just that the people did something wrong. This is not just something they did. It is symptomatic of what they are. Verse 9 says, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Refusing to obey God's law. When someone willfully, willingly transgresses and violates the clear word of God, that is nothing less then stubbornness and rebellion. Stiff-necked sort of has the idea of, of a farm animal that will not wear the yoke, will not be okay with being harnessed and guided and directed, will not respond to its master. And that's what these people are like. This is what they are. 
This is their character. This is their spiritual condition. And it calls for wrath. Verse 10, he says, Let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and, may cons- and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. And you need to understand this is no empty threat. God has done this before. Remember, this is the same God who sent the flood, wiped out the whole human race except for one family. This is the same God who destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah, raining down fire and brimstone from heaven. And now his righteous anger that always burns against sin, it's now directed at his people because they have repudiated his covenant, corrupted themselves. They are stiff-necked people. This is God's speech to Moses. Then we see Moses' speech back to God. If you could describe God's speech as divine displeasure, which is an understatement, we see a desperate plea in verses 11 through 14. But Moses implored the Lord, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say, With evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever." And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. If I could turn once again to Psalm 106. I love the way the psalmist retells this story. He says that they forgot God, their Savior, verse 21, who had done great things in Egypt, wondrous works in the land of Ham, and awesome deeds by the Red Sea. Therefore, he said he would destroy them. Had not Moses, his chosen one, stood in the breach before him to turn away his wrath from destroying them. Moses stood in the breach. He stepped in on behalf of the nation Israel. And he prayed, he implores God, he entreats him, he pleads with him, he seeks his favor, he seeks compassion, he seeks mercy on behalf of the people of Israel, the people who were stiff-necked, the people who had corrupted themselves, the people who had abandoned their covenant with God, the people who had been faithless and unbelieving, the people who had sinned. Moses prays on their behalf. And notice what Moses doesn't do in this prayer. He doesn't negotiate with God. He doesn't doesn't say, well, Lord, if you'll just give us a chance, we can make up for it. We'll do X, Y, and Z and, and sort of make up for this somehow. No. He also doesn't make excuses. He doesn't say, Lord, this is all they know. For for 400 years, they were in Egypt, and this is how everyone worships, and you just got to give them time to sort of, you know, learn that this isn't the, the way things are done. No, he doesn't minimize their sin at all. And he doesn't blame God. He doesn't do any of those things. And he really doesn't even divorce himself from the people. Even though they've given up on him, Moses doesn't give up on them. Instead, he appeals to God on their behalf. 
As the psalmist says, he stands in the breach, in the gap. He steps into this. He takes ownership of representing the people. And what makes his appeal so effective, if you say, I want to be, uh, be able to pray like Moses, I want to pray effective prayers like this, then we can learn from this because this prayer was so effective because it focuses not on Moses, it doesn't focus on the people, it's not even just about him using the right words, it's the fact that this prayer focuses on God. This prayer appeals to something within God himself. Notice that sort of the breakdown of this prayer. First of all, he appeals to God's relationship with his people. Moses implored the Lord, verse 11, his God, and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? God has said, Moses, your people whom you brought out have done this. And Moses goes, Lord, these are your people. And yeah, I was involved, but you're the one who really brought them out. What's going on here? Well, I don't think this is like parents of a disobedient child. I don't think this is one of those situations where a mom says, honey, do you know what your son did today at school? It's funny how it's, you know, it's your son in, in those situations. And where the father says, Why did your son do this? No, this isn't like parents squabbling over who's responsible. That's not what's going on here. Moses is appealing to God's love for these people. Yes, they've abandoned the covenant. Yes, I'm identified with these people. But Lord, you love these people. You are the one who brought them out. You're the one who set your affection on them. And they may have abandoned this covenant and repudiated you, but remember that these are your people by choice. You're the one who told Pharaoh that Israel is like your son. You're the one who chose them, blessed them, and multiplied them in Egypt. They're yours by choice. They're yours by right of redemption. You brought them out. They are yours. And again, Moses is not trying to distance himself from Israel here. He's rather appealing to God's love for these people. He's appealing to God's relationship with him. Yes, they are Moses' people, in a sense. But they are, more importantly, God's people. And his prayer appeals to that. Secondly, he appeals not only to God's relationship with these people. He appeals to God's covenantal love for them. But he also appeals to God's glory. He shows what his concern is in verse 12. It's not just... You know, his concern for the fate of Israel. It's his concern for the reputation of God. He says, why should the Egyptians say, with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them for the face of the earth? He says, Lord, if you do this, people are going to get the wrong idea about you. They're not going to understand the glory of your salvation. They're going to think you brought them out here just to kill them. And they will laugh. They will not be in awe of you. They will not recognize your grace. They will not understand your justice. And Lord, your glory deserves to be known. Your name deserves to be feared. Your glory deserves to be magnified. And this will not magnify your glory. He appeals to God's glory. And here's what's awesome about this is Moses actually has an opportunity to get glory out of this whole thing. I mean, God had said, stand aside. I'm going to consume them and I'll start over with you. Really? You mean I can be like the newer version of Abraham? I can be the one that everyone looks up to as the grand patriarch of a new nation. I won't have to deal with these stiff-necked people anymore. That actually sounds very appealing. 
And that would have meant glory for Moses. But Moses was more concerned for God's glory than for his own. Moses had an opportunity to become even greater than he already was. But his prayer focuses on how this would affect the reputation of God. And that's his primary concern. So he appeals to God's loving relationship with his people. He appeals to God's glory. And then third, he appeals to God's promise. Verse 13, he says, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven. And all this land that I have promised will be, I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. He says, listen, Lord, I know that these people have forgotten you, but I'm asking you to remember them. And again, it's not like God would have forgotten about this promise. Like, oh yeah, I did say that one time, didn't I? Sometimes my kids remind me of promises I've made that I have forgotten. Dad, you said we could go to the park after dinner. Yeah, you're right about that. I'm sorry, I forgot. God never forgets like that. And that's not what Moses is concerned about. When Moses asks God to remember his promise, he's asking God to fulfill it. This is an expression of faith. He's saying, God, I know you're angry. I know your righteous wrath burns, rightly so, against this great wickedness. I make no excuses for it. But God, I believe in your promise. And you said You promised, you swore by your own self, verse 13, that you were going to do something for this nation. And I'm asking you to remember that promise, to to keep it, to act it out right now in this moment, and to show mercy. He asks God to relent. The remarkable response to this prayer, verse 14, and the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. God relents. He does not consume his people. And as we'll see over the next chapter or two, there are going to be consequences from this sin, even death for some. But God does not destroy the entire nation. Yes, a plague will come. Yes, there's going to be um, some necessary executions even. Yes, there's going to be long-term consequences. This would be a stumbling block for Israel for centuries to come. But God does not wipe them out. He shows mercy in this moment for these people. Just as shocking as the grievous sin at the base of the mountain, so too we should be shocked and amazed by God's covenant faithfulness at his steadfast love, at his mercy, that even though these people did this great wickedness, in the heart of God there is steadfast love, there is compassion There is mercy, there is forgiveness, and he listens to the prayer of this man, Moses. And he relents, he relents from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. Now this statement that God relented is one that we need to look at very carefully. We need to look more deeply at it. Because it's important that we rightly understand the nature of God, that we rightly describe what's going on here. Because there's several times in Scripture where this kind of language is used, and we need to make sure we don't get the wrong idea about God. What does it mean that he relented? Did God change his mind? If God is sovereign and has determined what's going to happen, does this mean that somehow that he made a bad decision and then Moses gave him some good counsel and he, he switched paths? We need to understand what it means that God would relent. 
Scripture teaches us that when God makes a sovereign decree, when he says something is going to happen, that he does not change. Numbers 23, 19 says, God is not a man that he should lie or a son of man that he should change his mind. Has he said and will he not do it? Or has he spoken and will he not fulfill it? Scripture teaches us Likewise, that God is not fickle. He does not have emotions that rise and fall involuntarily. God doesn't overreact and then later think better about it. No. God doesn't lose his temper. He doesn't get mad and then get over it. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's unchanging. So we need to understand that what's going on here is not somehow undermining the sovereignty of God. And likewise, it's not saying that God changes. So what is it saying? Well, I think we need to look back at verse 10. Verse 10, God says, Now therefore let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. What is God saying in verse 10? Well, what he's not saying, what he's not doing is issuing a sovereign decree. He's not saying that this is what is going to happen. This is my sovereign will, my plan, and what I'm going to accomplish. This is not a sovereign decree. It is rather a conditional warning. It's a conditional warning. Rather than announcing to Moses what he has determined to do, he's announcing to Moses a possibility. Look, three times he uses the word may. He says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. This is a possibility. Three words he uses, or three times he uses this word, may. He's communicating to Moses that what Moses chooses to do next is going to have direct impact on what happens to the nation. The phrase, let me alone, is one we need to look at carefully as well. As I'm reading this, I'm, I'm going, whoa, did God just command Moses to do something? You know, leave me alone, let me alone, don't interfere. And then Moses turns around and directly disobeys God's command by praying and interfering and not leaving him alone? Because if so, Moses is just as much in rebellion against God as the people at the base of the mountain. And there's no way God's going to listen to his prayer. So it can't be a command. And it's also not like God needs Moses' permission. When he says, let me alone that I may do this, he's not saying, I mean, he doesn't need Moses' permission to do what he wants. And it's not like Moses could stop him if he tried. No one can stop God's hand. So why is he saying, let me alone? I think what God is saying to Moses is he's actually extending an invitation to Moses, prompting him to pray. There's several clues to this. He says, go down to your people. Go down to your people. That's verse 7. When he get, issues these instructions to Moses to go down, and, and he says, your people. He's reminding Moses of his connection with the nation. And he's reminding Moses about his identification with them and his obligation to them. Moses, remember, your job is to be the representative of these people. Moses, your job is to be the mediator between me and them. Moses, you have a responsibility to fulfill. He's hinting at these things, reminding Moses of this reality. And when he says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot, that I may consume them and make a new nation out of you, 
What he's communicating to Moses is that, listen, Moses, as long as you stand in the way, these people will not be destroyed. God is announcing to Moses that Moses actually stands in a position to effectively mediate for the people. If Moses stands aside, if he does nothing, the people will be destroyed. It's not an empty threat. But if Moses will not stand aside, then God will not destroy them. So there's an implied condition here. It's a conditional warning, not a sovereign declaration. And even in the last words, when he says to Moses that he'll make a great nation out of Moses, you know what he's doing? These are words that echo the Abrahamic covenant. He's reminding Moses of that older, deeper, more ancient promise that is not a conditional covenant, but an unconditional one, one that cannot fail, one that must be accomplished. He's actually furnishing Moses with the raw material he needs to pray effectively and to avert the wrath of God. And so Moses prays and God relents. And this relenting is not somehow a change in God's purpose or plan. And it does not signal a change in God. The word relent here means more than simply change your mind. Often this word, naham, has the idea of compassion or pity. It has the idea of showing mercy. And listen, that is God's nature. He has always been merciful. He desires to be merciful. He always will be merciful. That is who he is, and it doesn't change. And this is a moment where the mercy of God is about to be displayed as Moses prays and appeals to his steadfast love for his people. This demonstration of mercy is not somehow a deviation from from God's nature. It's consistent with his nature, consistent with his purpose to show mercy to his people. In the next chapter, the Lord will pass before Moses in verse 19 and say, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. If you're gonna know who God actually is, what he is in his essence, You have to understand his mercy and that he sovereignly bestows grace upon those whom he loves. So when God chooses to relent and to not consume his people, he's acting perfectly and consistently in accordance with who he is. This does not somehow signal a change in God or even a change in his purpose. Again, to go back to Psalm 106, it says, for their sake, he remembered his covenant. That's faithfulness. And he relented according to the abundance of his steadfast love. This is not a compromise on God's part. He relents according to the abundance of his steadfast love, his covenant faithfulness to his people. So this mercy is the permanent heartbeat of our God. And you see this in other places in Scripture. There's two things that arouse this mercy. There's two things in other places that sometimes that God will respond to by relenting of certain disaster, certain judgment that he speaks of. We see this in the book of Jonah. In Jonah's case, there's this message of judgment that in a certain number of days, Nineveh is going to be destroyed. But we know that eventually that God relented of that. He did not destroy Nineveh. And that's because the people humbled themselves before the Lord. They repented. God responds to repentance by showing mercy. And that shows us that Jonah's message of judgment, that the Lord was going to send judgment on Nineveh, that that's a conditional statement, isn't it? 
Jonah knew that. That's why he didn't want to share that message. He didn't want them to be spared from the judgment to come. In the case of the prophet Amos, you can go look in the book of Amos. There are several times where God speaks of this disaster that's going to come upon the nation Israel because of their sin. And Amos prays, just like Moses, on behalf of the people. And God hears that prayer and relents. So we see in various places of Scripture that repentance and faith expressed in prayer is that which lays hold of this mercy in the heart of God. If you want to experience God's mercy, it happens through repentance and faith, which is so often expressed in these prayers to the Lord. And that lays hold of this love, this compassion, this mercy that is ever present in the heart of God. And get this, this relenting of wrath, this is exactly what God wanted to happen. He wanted to forgive them. He desired to restore them. So his words to Moses when he says, let me alone that, and stand back that my wrath may burn hot against them, that I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you, that's not a command to not interfere. He's actually inciting and moving Moses to pray. Those words were supposed to compel him to even give him the, the raw material with which to pray to the Lord. And, and rather than undermining the sovereignty of God, when we understand his relenting in this passage this way, this actually magnifies the sovereignty of God. This was all God's doing. This was his plan from the beginning. This was his sovereign purpose. To be faithful to his covenant to these people. To restore them. You see, God not only ordained the end, that Israel would be rescued from Egypt and brought safely into the promised land, God also ordained the means, how to get them from point A to point B. And that included the means of prayer. It included this man, Moses, standing in the breach and praying. God's sovereign plan included this prayer that would divert his wrath in this moment. Think about God's preparation for this moment. Think about it. Who raised up Moses in the first place? Who, who protected his life as he was put into the basket in the Nile River? Who was it who, who prepared Moses, took him into the wilderness as a shepherd for 40 years? Who is it that shaped in the heart of Moses a godly fear and a love for the nation of Israel? And the humility that would say no to personal glory and fame. Who is it who announced the danger of divine wrath to Moses, thus inviting him to pray? God did all of that. God did it. It was never his purpose to destroy Israel. It was his purpose from the beginning to save them. And in order to save them, Moses needed to pray. And he did. So Moses' prayer does not change the plan of God. Get this, Moses' plan fulfills the plan of God. Sin is what threatens God's sovereign purpose. But Moses' intercessory prayer is what preserved God's sovereign purpose. Moses' prayer was the means by which God accomplished his will and maintained his covenant promise for these people. So it's an amazing scene. We have this shocking sin at the bottom of the mountain and then this amazing interaction between Moses as the mediator and a sovereign God whose wrath burns hot against sin, yet he has mercy on the people whom he has chosen. 
And he responds to this prayer of Moses as he stands in the breach. So what is it that we should draw from this story today? I want to share three principles this morning in conclusion, three takeaways for us. Number one, this story ought to heighten our awareness of sin and its dangers. It ought to heighten our awareness of sin and its dangers. You know what put God's covenant plans for Israel in jeopardy? You know what was the biggest threat to them? It wasn't the oppression they faced in Egypt. It wasn't the attacks of the Amalekites along the way. It wasn't the lack of food and water in the desert. That wasn't the biggest threat. No, sin is what threatened the fulfillment of God's purposes the most. Sin is what put the covenant promise in jeopardy. The greatest danger is not out there. It's in here. It's in here. That's something we need to believe and take seriously. That the greatest threat to you, Christian, and the greatest threat to you, not yet Christian, and I'm not sure why you're here, but you're considering all of these things, the greatest threat to you is your own sin and the wrath of God that rightly burns against that sin. Do you believe that? Christians, we are supposed to be not of this world. We've been taken out of the world, out of the kingdom of darkness, in a sense. But there's still a lot of that in us. We carry with us a lot of wrong thinking, old habits that die hard. It's easy for us to be conformed to the world, like Romans 12 says. And we need to be on guard against that. We need to beware of reverting, relapsing, taking things into our own hands, relying on our own efforts. We need to be on guard against the distrust in our heart, the discontentment in our heart at what God has provided. We need to be on guard against determining to do things our way and abandoning the word of God that clearly reveals his will for us as his people. Friends, this is dangerous. It is deadly. Church, I think that we, just speaking about our church here at Redemption Hill, we're a church that is very serious and aware, rightly so, about outside threats, about false teaching, about opposition, about worldly ideologies and philosophies that threaten to enter into the church and corrupt the church. But friends, there needs to also be along with that a godly seriousness about sin. A godly seriousness about personal holiness. A seriousness about faithfulness to our God. A church that becomes dismissive of God's holiness. A church that becomes apathetic towards God's law. A church that becomes agitated by God's timing. That church is dangerously susceptible to apostasy. Revelation chapters 1, 2, and 3 tells us there's lots of ways for a church to die. And allowing sin in the church. If we, are to, if we were to corrupt ourselves the way Israel did, that will kill this thing. And we need to, need to have a heightened awareness of the seriousness of sin. Secondly, this story also ought to give, or it also ought to heighten our appreciation for our mediator. There is one who stands in the breach for us. 
In order to save a sinful people, God has sovereignly appointed a mediator who will identify with sinful people and represent them. One who will avert his wrath against our sin. And guys, our mediator is better than Moses. His name is Jesus. And because Jesus stood in the breach for us, because he hung on the cross for us, because he now pleads our case in heaven, the wrath of God will never fall on the redeemed. Not because it couldn't. We do deserve it. It simply won't. Because of the work of our intercessor, the one who stepped in the gap for us and who diverted the wrath of God. And Christ diverted the wrath of God not by delaying it, but by personally absorbing it himself. Jesus took upon himself the wrath that our sin has earned. We are chosen by grace, rescued by love, and destined for the promised land. Not because we have no sin, but despite our sin. Because God has shown compassion on us. He has shown mercy on us. And the means by which he has extended his mercy and forgiveness upon us is by sending his son to stand in the gap. By sending Jesus to die and rise again on our behalf. Texts like this ought to give us a heightened appreciation for our mediator, one who is better than Moses, who has represented us before God. And then finally, this story also ought to heighten our sense of awe at the mercy of God. Do you marvel at God's forgiveness of your sin? Do you marvel that the wrath that should fall on you has been diverted? Or do you think, well, it's kind of God's job to forgive. Isn't he supposed to forgive us? That's like what he does, right? Do you have a sense of entitlement? Do you take that for granted? This is to be a deeply humbling truth when we realize why God forgives. Why why would God forgive Israel? Similarly, why would God forgive us? I think Moses' prayer gives us a hint. He doesn't do it because of anything in us. He doesn't even do it ultimately for our sake. The reason God would show mercy and forgive your sin and my sin is for the sake of his glory, for the sake of his name, to demonstrate his faithfulness to his promise, to demonstrate his power to overcome our unbelief and our unfaithfulness. And when you consider your personal experience of mercy and forgiveness in light of God's glory and his majesty and his holiness and his wrath, it ought to give you a deep sense of awe, a profound sense of gratitude. The fact that God's mercy is not based on something in us, but it's actually based on something in God. Listen, this is astonishing good news. We should be glad that it's this way. Because it means that it ultimately doesn't depend on us, but it depends on God. I love how Alec Motier comments on this passage. He says, it was not for any goodness in them that he chose Israel and Egypt. And here, their lack of goodness did not make him change his mind. From beginning to end, he loves us simply because he loves us. And the love which brought us out will bring us in. That's profound good news, that God loves us simply because he loves us. He does it for his name's sake and for his glory. 
And because God never changes, that means the basis for our salvation never changes. It means the security for our salvation never changes. And this should be a deep comfort and something that produces awe and gratitude. Guys, this is the God that we worship. This is what he's like. This is why he forgives sin. And although we are an unfaithful and rebellious people, and although his holy wrath always burns against sin, yet his mercy abounds to sinners because this is what glorifies him. And he delights to forgive and to show compassion. We are a people who so easily turn away. And our only hope this morning is that there might be within the heart of God an eternal purpose to save and a willingness to show mercy. Our only hope is that someone might stand in the breach for us. And so as those who are guilty of great sin, all of us, we can find joy today in this, that we can look to the greatness of God's mercy and rejoice in the greatness of our Savior, Jesus Christ, the one who stood in the breach for us. To him be glory in the church both now and forever. Amen. Lord, I come before you just aware right now of my own sinfulness. We come before you collectively aware of our sinfulness. We are no different than Israel. You've brought us out of Egypt, as it were, but there's still so much of Egypt in us. And while you have been faithful to us, we are so often unfaithful to you. We forget your goodness. We're dismissive of your purposes and plans. We violate your law. And Lord, you would be just to consume us. That is what we deserve. That is what justice calls for. Yet within your heart, there is mercy and compassion and a desire to complete your redemptive purposes and to save a people for yourself. And because of that, you sent your son. And he stood in the gap. He hung on a cross so that the consuming righteous wrath would fall on him instead of us. And through Jesus Father, you've extended that forgiveness to us, and for that we thank you. And we know that you do this not because of any goodness in us, but because you want to, because you love us. You love us because you love us. That's comforting. It's humbling. Lord, forgive us for an attitude of entitlement, an attitude that takes that for granted, an attitude that thinks, well, of course you forgive us. That's your job. Lord, give us a deeper awareness of the seriousness of sin this morning. I pray that you'd give us a deeper appreciation for Christ and his work on our behalf. And Lord, give us a deeper sense of awe at your mercy, that you are a God who would relent of the wrath that should fall on people like us. Lord, produce in us a deeper faith this morning, and I pray that for those who do not yet know you, for those who have lived a life of violating your law. I pray that they would humble themselves today and come to Jesus, the only one who can save. I pray that they would come to him in repentance, that they would come in faith, crying out in prayer, that you might divert your wrath that right now abides upon them, 
wrath and condemnation that they are destined for if they do not repent and believe in Christ. Lord, we know that there's a possibility today for salvation. It doesn't have to end in judgment. I pray that those today who don't know you would cry out and believe. In Christ's name we pray this, amen.